Thank you, Daniel, for reading that text. Because through that text is a string, a crimson string of love that shows us the heart of God and why he would send the servant Jesus to take our sorrows, to take our sin, to take our iniquity on himself and to free us from it. And that's a great love. And that's what we're talking about today. If you want to turn there, we'll be in John chapter 3 for the morning's message. And we're talking about Advent. Advent is a Latin word that simply means Christ's coming. So he came the first time 2,000 years ago, and he will come again at any given moment. He is the God who comes near. In fact, his name given to us in the scriptures is God with us or Emmanuel. His name, Jesus, comes from a Hebrew word that simply means that God saves. And that is who he is. He is the God who comes close. He is the God who comes near. He is the God who saves. He's the God who works on our behalf, different from all other supposed gods in supposed religions where they require you to work on your own behalf. Why would God send Jesus to earth to work for us? undeserving, sinful, we've made some big mistakes and bad decisions, why would God send Jesus on this mission, this rescue mission, to come and gather a people to his name, to come and save sinners like me, sinners like you? It all comes down to this, God loves us. It all comes down to love. In a typical Advent series, you hit four things. You hit hope because Christ's Advent, his coming, brings us hope. You hit peace because Christ's coming brings us peace. You hit joy because Christ's coming brings us joy. And you hit love. And today we'll talk about how we see his love so, so perfectly and so prominently through his coming to us through the womb of a virgin teenage girl out in a farmer's stall during tax season while the government is trying to kill all children under two to get rid of one, that's Jesus, who would grow up and be king of the Jews, of which Herod was afraid, the one baby who would become become a man in a small town called Nazareth as a blue-collar worker, likely low-income and poor, likely lacking education. He comes, he lives the perfect sinless life. He dies on the cross in our place for our sins, taking our weight on himself, taking our pressure, taking our punishment on himself. He rises from death. He does all of this out of a heart of love. It shows us that God did this because he loves us. I want you to understand this, that if Christmas was a plant the roots would be love if all jesus did for us from his incarnation his life work his example that he set the miracles the feedings the teachings the preaching the cross the resurrection if all of that was a garden the seeds would be love if, if his salvation, his death in our place, his great grace, his forgiveness, his resurrection and thus our resurrection and eternal life, if all of that was a ring, the diamond would be love. 
It all comes down to this. God loves us. And we see this so clearly in, Genesis, uh, in John, rather, chapter 3. In John chapter 3, we see this in verse 16. The most famous verse of the Bible, it is pretty much a summation of the Bible. Jesus is teaching here. He is speaking with a man named Nicodemus. And he says a verse that has now been memorized in all languages, all tribes, all tongues, all across the world. And it answers this question of why would Jesus, God, come to earth to become the God-man? Why would he take on flesh, endure difficulty, poverty, and sinners to save sinners like us? Why would he come through the womb of a virgin teenage girl? Why would he go to such great lengths to make sure that we were okay? Verse 16 of John 3 tells us very clearly, and it says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's why he gave him. That's why he sent him. John so lo- uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It all comes down to this. God loves you. God loves you. Merry Christmas. God loves you. I want to remind us today of a couple of ways in which God loves us. I'll say this first, just by way of reminder. I want us to remember God loves us by definition. Who's writing John 3.16? is a guy named John. And John particularly knew of the love of God. He knew it in a unique way. He knew it in a special way. He knew it in a profound way. Because, see, John was likely Jesus' best friend. The Bible tells us that John was the disciple whom Jesus loved. In church history, he's called John the Beloved. We see that he's in Jesus' close inner circle of friends, Peter, James, and John. We see that they have special relationship and moments together. He knew of God's love more than anybody. And John writes not only the book of John, but he also writes some letters to the church. Later in the New Testament, you'll find 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And in 1st John, chapter 4, verse 8, he gives us a definition of the character, of the nature, of the essence of God. And he says simply that God is love by definition. In fact, that is his very words. God is love. This is what John says. After spending time with Jesus, after following Jesus during his three-year ministry, after watching Jesus himself, watching with his eyes die on a cross and be pummeled to death by the Roman Empire, after seeing Jesus after his funeral, right, seeing Jesus post-death, seeing the resurrected Jesus, after starting the church, being one of Jesus' apostles in the book of Acts, after all that, Towards the end of his life, he writes, I've been with him, I've seen him, I've talked with him, I've hung out with him, I know him, and let me tell you, God is love, says the Apostle John. God loves us. God loves you by definition. Here's what this means, and this is so good. This is the good news. This is so important. God loves you because of him, not because of you. 
That's important to know, right? God's love is so perfect. It's so awesome. It's so big. It's so majestic. It's so powerful. It's never ending and it's never stopping. And it's like you're always breathing in his love. You're under an avalanche of his love at all times, just a tsunami raining down. You are always in the deep ocean of the love of God. And it is because of his position, not your performance. Because this is a love by definition. This is a love because of who he is. Let me try to break this down and explain this a little more. Okay, um, this week we're staying home for Christmas. I got, my parents are in Indiana. My wife's parents are in Seattle, Washington. So we got a lot of places we could go for Christmas. But over the last few years, we decided it was best for us to take this holiday and spend it together. Just me, Joanna, and the kids. Now here, let me tell you this, okay? My mom and dad, her mom and dad, they do not really care that we're not coming for Christmas. They care that their grandkids are not coming for Christmas, right? Like if we stuck them in our luggage, put them on a plane, and then we forgot to board, they wouldn't even notice, okay? They would not, let alone care. Right now, they're cool with us staying home for Christmas. We've talked about it. We go out there for Thanksgiving and other times. Okay, but for Christmas, we stay home. And the bummer for the grandmas is not that they're not going to see me, their own flesh and blood, their child. It's that they're not going to see the grandkids. Grandmas, I mean, they're intense with that love for the grandkids. It's like a spectacle. It's like nothing you'll ever see. I mean, it's crazy. It's mama bear to the max, right? And here's what's crazy. My, my parents, my mom has already gotten, my mom got Alden and Marin Christmas presents at Thanksgiving, which means she bought them before, she bought them Christmas presents before Thanksgiving, and there's still stuff coming from Amazon. Pray for us, because I don't know where we're going to put this stuff. I'm like, you guys have been to our house, right? You know there's only so much square footage for plastic stuff. Like, please stop sending my kids toys. And so, Grandma's already bought them presents before Christmas even started. She's bought them more presents. We get an Amazon package a day with 100 little pieces in it, okay? And here's what's crazy. My mom loves, Grandma loves the grandkids, but here's something you got to know. This is just interesting to note. Marin and Alden, quite literally, have never done anything to benefit or impress grandma. Now think about it. They've never mowed the lawn. They're four, they're three and five. They've not paid the bills. They have not brought home good grades. They haven't, they, ha they don't even know her real name, right? They, they do not sing, my kids at least, do not sing or dance. And it's not because we're Baptists, they just don't, right? They don't sing or dance. They don't, like, there is, like, she loved them before they even got here. When Joanna was pregnant, she was the same way. Before the thing was even at born, she's writing cards and buying stuff and giving us gift cards to Target and asking if the baby's okay. And the baby has done nothing. The kids have done nothing that would give her gain or even be impressive, okay? You say, well, then why does she love them? Because of her position as grandma. Not because of the kid's performance. Those kids could do nothing. Those kids, they do nothing. I've seen it, right? Where's the iPad? Right, but, but, grandma loves them so much, not based on who they are, but based on who she is in relation to them. 
So this is the idea. That's how God loves you. He loves you without you doing or not doing anything. He loves you, though you have nothing that can benefit him. He's got it all. He's God. Right? You cannot add to his treasury with any of your good works, with any of your ability. And he's God. You cannot impress him. Okay, this guy can part the Red Sea. You can't even cure the common cold. He is not impressed. But he loves you to death. Why? Because of his position, because of his definition, because of who he is. Here's what this means for you. There is nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there is nothing you can do to make God love you less. He loves you based on himself, his character, his goodness by definition. This morning, I also want to remind you of this. God loves you in detail. Now, we're going to take a little Bible detour here, and it is going to be awesome. My Bible guys, you'll love this, okay? I'm looking at you, George, Daniel, you guys are going to like this. Let's go to 2 Kings. 2 Kings. Now, I know it's going to be hard to find, okay? But it's in the Old Testament of the Bible. If you can't find it, don't worry. I'll read it to you and for you. But 2 Kings chapter number 6. I came across this text about the love of God in college, and after I read it, I was like, why is that in the Bible? What in the world does that mean? You ever do your devotions, and you come across a verse, and you're like, this must be a mistake, right? Like, who put this in there? Who snuck this into the Word of God? Because it doesn't make sense to me right now. This is that verse for me. This is that text for me. I had no, it took me hours and days of contemplating, pondering, thinking to figure out why this story was in the Bible. But then I got an answer. Here's the story. In 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, the prophets are with Elisha, the main prophet. And they say, listen, we're all living together to do the work of God together, but this place is too small for all of us to live here. Okay, this is too small, right? We need to build a bigger prophet's chamber. We need to build a bigger house for the prophets of Israel. So we got to go down to the woods and we got to cut logs and we got to make ourselves a big old place to live because there's a lot of prophets trying to do this thing together. And so Elisha, who's kind of the leader, says, sure, let's go cut down wood. Let's go build a bigger house for all the prophets. So they go down to the woods indeed. And we pick up the story in verse 4 through 6. Uh, verse 7, rather, verse 4 through 7, and we see just something so unique and odd and different. Here's what the Bible says. Let's look at 2 Kings 6, 4. It says, So he went with them, Elisha went with them, and they came down to the Jordan River, and they cut down wood, right? Going to build a big house for all the prophets. Verse 5, But as one was felling a beam, that means as one was cutting down a log, the axe head fell into the water, okay? And he cried and said, Alas, Master, Elisha, leader, I'm sad, I'm, I'm bummed because it was borrowed. And the man of God, Elisha, said, Where did it fall? And he showed him the place and he cut a stick and cast it in. So he showed him, it's in the Jordan River. Elisha cast a stick in the Jordan River. And the iron did swim. 
The axe head, instead of sinking like it would, it floated to the top in verse 7. Therefore, Elisha said, take it up to thee. And he put out his hand and he took it. He got the axe head back. Now, as I'm doing my devotions, I remember this was around college time. I'm reading this. I get to this story about a dude who I kind of self-identify with a little bit, trying to cut down a tree to no avail because this is likely not his thing. He didn't sign up to be a preacher to make a giant house out of logs, but here he is. And he's trying to cut down this tree and he breaks the axe and the axe head falls out, goes down the hill into the Jordan River. And then he's crying. He's disturbed. He's bummed. He's distraught in his spirit because that wasn't his axe. He had borrowed it. Who knows what the situation is? I mean, he might have borrowed it from his father-in-law. This is going to be bad, right? This is not good. He might have borrowed it from uh, a neighbor, and that neighbor was like, don't break this. And he's like, I won't break it. This is what I do. I'll never break. Why would I break it? Boom, it broke. I don't know what the situation is, okay? But he is disturbed and distraught because he's broken the axe. He's lost the axe head. It was borrowed. And Elisha, who has plenty to do, right? There's the prophets of Baal. There's the doom of Israel and their future because of idolatry, wars and rumors of wars. You got Elisha, who's got plenty to do, says, what happened? Where'd it go? And he points to the Jordan River. Elisha cuts off a branch, chucks it in the Jordan River. A miracle is performed, and the axe head floats to the top. And here I am as a college kid going, what does that have to do with anything? I'm like trying to figure that out. I'm like, I tried to allegorize it. I was like, maybe the axe, symbol of hope. And he lost his hope. But in God, there's always hope. I'm trying to make sense out of this thing. Truth is, not an allegory. You go read the commentators. They're also confused by it to some degree. Everybody's kind of come to this conclusion. God put this story in the Bible to prove and show He cares about the details. God does care about Israel's idolatry, the war coming with whoever, one of the ites, the Jebusites, the Gazites, these sites, that sites, all the sites, right? He cares about the wars. He cares about Baal taking over. He cares about all the demonic activity. And yet he cares still about your friend who lost the axe that was borrowed and is now in an awkward social situation. He cares about you down to the detail, to the letter, to the T, to the dot, every iota. He cares about the details. He is the God who can speak planets and move mountains and and part seas. And he's also the God who cares about your meeting on Tuesday, who cares about the awkward conversation you know is coming this Christmas, the weird uncle who's probably going to show up late and not super sober, Right? He cares about all that. Right? He ca- down to the detail, he follows you, he loves you, he knows you, and he is willing for you to restore the axe head, to fix even these small things, to, to care about the details. Luke 12 tells us even the hairs on our head are numbered. He cares about the details. I'll tell you a story about me learning this. Right? So in college I read about this. But it wasn't until after I was married until I, really, I got to see this one day firsthand. We moved into the townhome that we live in now. We've lived there for about six years. We moved in, and every year we get a real Christmas tree. And so we went, we got our real Christmas tree, 
and we set it up in the house. And Christmas came, Christmas went, and about mid-January, you really got to get that tree out of the house because it's looking rough by that point, right? The cat, we used to have a cat, pray for us, we're still recovering, but uh, just kidding, I love cats, love animals, whatever. Um, we used to have a cat, cat would destroy it, needles everywhere, now we got kids, kids destroy it, needles everywhere. You got to get rid of the living tree in the house because it's dying, and that's my job. So I got to get rid of the tree, and this was the first year we lived in the townhome, and it's like a townhome community. And so we have a community dumpster down the hill. And I had to get rid of the tree. And so I was like, I wonder, can you put the tree in the dumpster? So I Googled it. And uh, I didn't find an exact law prohibiting it, but it's definitely frowned upon. Okay. And so I said, listen, I'm not a legalist. I'm putting this tree in the dumpster. Right? I'm under grace. So I... I take the tree. I go at night so my neighbors won't see me. And I go down the, down the hill with the tree, and I have to wrestle this tree into the dumpster. Like, it just wouldn't just go in. All the branches were everywhere. I had to put it over the top. And, I mean, I was fighting I mean, with this tree. Um, I mean, I felt like Jacob. Like, I left with my hip out of joint and everything. Like it was, so I'm putting this tree into the dumpster, wrestling it in. Finally, I hear it fall. And I'm done. I sneak back up the hill, looking for lights, looking for cameras. Nobody saw. We're all good. Go back in the house. Okay, next day, go to work. And I'm at work, and I'm at my desk, and I notice I cannot find my wedding ring. I can't find it. So I'm looking all around the desk. I go back to the car, looking in the car. At lunch, I go home for lunch and look around my nightstand. I'm looking around, you know, the bathroom, trying to find, man, where did my wedding ring go? I searched the whole rest of the day, can't find it. And I was so discouraged. I was so bummed out about that. Like, I was like, I had it on every day. I never took it off. At this point, I guess that would have been two years. And I was just so ticked off that I lost my wedding ring. So a few days went by, and I was pretty bummed about it. And a few days went by, and it was time to take out the trash. So I cinched up the trash, and I went down the hill to the dumpster. And I throw the trash into the dumpster, and I go to turn around. And as I turn around, like I can't even explain this. As I turn around, I just see this glimmer out of the corner of my eye. And I just look down, and like barely peeking, from the bottom of the dumpster was this silver, like, half circle. And I'm like, wait, no what? No way! And I bend down, and sure enough, it's my wedding ring. And I had lost it while I was wrestling the tree into the dumpster. And it's kind of funny, because here I am trying to be all sneaky, and I'm leaving behind DNA evidence. Right, the Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. <laughs> And so I find it, I put it back on, and I'm walking back up the hill to the house, and I'm just filled with joy, because for me, in that moment, I remembered this text, and I remembered this truth, that God cares about me down to the smallest detail. Now, sometimes you lose the ring, because you need to learn a lesson, like, don't abuse the community dumpster, right? But sometimes you find the ring, and when you find the ring, when the detail works out, when the detail is, is taken care of, when God shows you that compassion, that grace, that love, just whisper up to the sky, you know, God, 
I love you too. Because that's what God is showing you. And that's what God is telling you. And that's what God is doing. When you get that call from a friend out of the blue and, you know, they encourage you and you know, hey, I needed that call. That was God. When someone asks you, hey, come over, watch the game. You watch the game. You, get, you're in a, you leave in a good mood. As small as that is, that was God. When, when someone compliments you at work, hey, good work, you did a good job, and they recognize you for what you've done, and you feel that sense of accomplishment, that's, that's God. When someone lets you over in traffic, you know that's God. Right? And, they, and you, you get through the light, and you get to the appointment on time, and this, just the details work out. Just, God, I love you too. Because that's God showing you his love for you. He cares about you. He loves you down to the very details of your life. God loves you by definition. God loves you down to the detail. And let's look at this. Back to John 3. Back to John chapter 3. I want you to know this, too, as we get more into the gospel this morning. That God loves you enough to get your attention. God loves you enough to demand your attention. We read John 3.16 about how God loves us so much he sent his son. But as we keep reading, we get to verse 18 and 19. And it's almost as if the tone changes a little bit. And he tells us and warns us of an impending judgment for those who will not believe. And it goes like this. Look at John 3. Let's look at verse 18 and 19. Verse 18, it says, He that believeth on him is not condemned. Right? You believe, you repent, you come to Christ, you get saved, you're forgiven. But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Now if you're reading along, you see John 3.16, God loves you, God sent his Son to save you, and then you get to 3.16. 18 319 if you don't believe there is a judgment it is coming you will not pass you will be condemned and many people would get to this and see an apparent contradiction they would say hey if god is love why is he speaking of condemnation and judgment and jesus here the one who's speaking in this text is saying i love you i'll save you if you don't believe i won't and it seems as if maybe he's not as loving as he thinks. Some get to this text and they say that. They think that. That there's a contradiction here and there's actually not as much love as we think. But the Bible would say that that is not true. That is not what's going on. That actually, in talking about judgment and in talking about condemnation, God is showing us a great, a mighty, a wonderful, a pure love. I want you to know this. If God did not love us, he would never tell us the truth. But God does tell us the truth. And here's the truth. All have sinned 
and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says in Exodus 20:15, thou shalt not steal. And the truth is, we stole. The Bible says in Proverbs 12:22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, and the truth is, we lied. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 4, I believe it's verse 29, not to let any corrupting communication proceed forth out of our mouth. And the truth is, we have gossiped and we have slandered and we have cussed people out. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 4, 32, love one another as Christ has loved you. And the truth is, we have not always been loving. We have sinned against God. And he is telling us the truth when he calls us out. If God didn't love us, he wouldn't tell us the truth. If God doesn't love us, he wouldn't warn us of the judgment that is coming because of our sin, lest we repent. Right? The Bible is full of warning of judgment because it is full of the love of God. There is no such thing as a good father who doesn't discipline his children. There is no such thing as a good judge who doesn't sentence the guilty. There is no such thing as a good king who doesn't enforce the law. There is no such thing as a good God who doesn't warn us of a coming judgment so that we can repent. We learn this in Ezekiel in the Bible. Ezekiel chapter 33, we see that Ezekiel was a prophet. And God said, you're not just a prophet, you're like a watchman. And here's your job, Ezekiel. You stand on the tower and you see if the enemy army is coming. And if the enemy army is coming to destroy Israel, you blow the horn so that Israel, though they will be inconvenienced by your message, they can evacuate and be saved. He says this to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 33. He says, if you see the enemy army coming, Ezekiel, and you don't blow the horn, and you don't inconvenience the people, and you don't warn the people, their blood is on your hands. That's what he says. And in that moment, what he's doing is drawing a metaphor of sorts. He's saying, Ezekiel, your job is to tell people to repent of sin, to evacuate sin, to run from sin, and to be forgiven for sin so that they might not be destroyed in their sin. And he says, Ezekiel, this message is going to inconvenience them. It is going to be negative. It is going not to be probably well received. But if you do not give this message of warning of judgment, you are guilty, not them. Here's the idea. It was love for Ezekiel to prophesy. God said if you did not prophesy, it was selfish and loveless. God follows his own rules. And God, because he loves us, says, run from the judgment. Come to my son, Jesus. Be forgiven of sin and you will pass the judgment with flying colors. Confess and repent and believe and you will have everlasting life. Judgment is coming. This is the warning of the Bible. And it's a warning given to us because God loves us. Because he loves us. I, listen, at some point, this will probably happen. You will go to the mall and you will see a slightly overweight 31-year-old white male losing his mind, screaming at two kids who will not get in the stroller. And that will be me. And I'll be like, Marin, get in the stroller. Alden, come back here, because they're running away from me in a parking lot. 
And it might look like I am losing my cool, but really, I'm showing my heart. I love you, Marin. You need to get in the stroller. You need to not run away from me in the mall parking lot because I do not want the bumper of that Ford F-150 to meet you, right, in the face. Right? I don't want there to be a collision here because I like you. I'm yelling at you because I love you. Some of you today, you know God is yelling at you. Don't hang out with that friend group. Don't pick up that bottle. Don't put that into your body. Don't make these excuses. Stop with the fraud, the lies, the sin, and repent, repent, repent. And you know why he's pulling on your heart for repentance? Because he likes you. Some of you are non-Christians, and he's saying, come to Christ, repent, believe in Christ. He took it all, he paid for it all, come to Jesus, be forgiven, and he's saying this because he loves you. You have to understand that God loves us enough to warn us of a coming judgment. I want you to know this this Christmas, and I want us to just hit this while we're here, that the issue is never whether or not God loves man. The issue is only ever, does man love God? That's it. You have to understand, when you think judgment seems harsh in the scriptures, you have to understand the true nature of man. That it is not that God does not love them, but that we do not love God like we ought. The other day, it was someone sent me something to listen to, his news, and I'm listening to this news thing, and they had caught one of the leaders of the largest child trafficking ring in the world. They caught him. He's in prison for life. And someone interviewed him, right? He's one of the leader of the largest child trafficking thing that's going on in the world. They catch him. They put him in jail. They ask him. They say, do you feel any remorse? Are you sorry for what you've done? His answer, no. If he was to be let out tomorrow, he would go do it again. You have to understand, God loves him. And if he repented in that jail cell, forgiven in full, eternal life. But he does not love God. This is what the Bible's saying. This is what Jesus is saying in, J in, in John 3, verse 19. Read that again. It says, this is why there's condemnation. This is why there's judgment. Lights come into the world. God has come. He has shown us great love. He has given us great love. But men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. I want you to know this morning, if you feel like God does not love you or could not love you or would not love you, the issue is not with God's love for you. That's already abundantly clear. Just look at the holes in his hands and the holes in his feet. The issue this morning is whether or not we love God. Say, I want to love God. I want to love God. I want to love God. Well, just remember this. God loves you enough to die. God loves you by definition. God loves you down to the detail. God loves you enough to demand attention. And as that fear of judgment creeps up in you, remember, no, 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 God loved me enough to die. Go back to the verse. Go back to John 3, 16 and 17. In fact, let's hit 17 first. 
Read this. This is unbelievable. This verse shows the Christmas spirit. It shows the true heart of God. John 3.17 says this. For God sent not his son into the world to judge the world, to condemn the world, to punish the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Okay, this shows us the heart of God. This shows us the love of God. What this verse is literally saying is this. God far prefers to save people than he does to condemn people. God far prefers salvation over judgment. He far prefers mercy over punishment. He far prefers relationship over repercussions. Say, how much more does God want to save us than judge us? How much more does God prefer a relationship with us than to punish us? How much more does God prefer salvation than condemnation? Verse 16 tells us the answer. Let's read it again. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Here's the idea. Right? God so loved the world. You wonder why that so is in there? I used to think it was that God loved the world so much that he sent his son. I thought it had to do with quantity. The truth is, this has to do with quality. What the word so is saying is God wanted to save people so much, here's what he did. God loved us so much, it was love to this degree, this quality, right? Like if I don't love you enough to share my fries with you, it's not a high quality love. If I don't love you enough to give you a ride when you need one, it's probably not a high quality love. God loves us enough to die in our place for our sins. It's the highest quality love. He so loved the world that he gave. What does that mean? He gave us his son. Why is that word in there? What is gave? Because it's not the same thing as I gave Chet a new guitar. It's not the same. This is the idea of he gave up his son. This is the idea of he gave up his precious only begotten son. This is the idea that we deserved judgment, and so God gave Jesus over to his enemies to take the judgment for us so that we could be forgiven, so that we could have grace, so that we could enjoy a relationship with him, so that we could go free, so that we could be saved. Why? Because he loves us. How much does God prefer salvation over condemnation? Enough to die for it. God gave his son. You have nothing to give because God gave it all. You have nothing that you have to pay. Jesus paid it all. You have nothing left to do. He did it all. There's nothing left for you to say. He said it all. You simply receive the gift. Repent and believe and be saved. This Christmas, you need to emotionally connect with this message. You need to emotionally connect with John 3. Especially, perhaps, as you're around the kids, the nieces, the nephews, the cousins, your own sons and daughters. It's, it, I remember the other day, my, my son, Alden, he's three, 
we were having hot chocolate. Now, when I say we were having hot chocolate, what I mean is we were having whipped cream. Because I poured hot chocolate for him, and I put some whipped cream on there, and about every 13, 14 seconds, he would say, more whipped cream. And I'd put more whipped cream on there, and he'd use a spoon and just eat that, and by the time the thing was over, he still had a full mug of hot chocolate. So we're drinking hot chocolate. And it was the cutest thing. Man, I felt like I was in the middle of a Hallmark movie. My little son drinking this hot cocoa, asking for whipped cream. He was being super cute. I couldn't even go prepare this sermon. That was my plan for that night. Was to go. I couldn't even get to the Bible. I was like, this guy is so cute. And I'm sitting there with my son, and he's being super funny, saying all this crazy stuff. And, you know, he still speaks, he speaks pretty good, but he also still says some gibberish stuff that I love because it doesn't make any sense. And, he points out stuff that's really obvious. I always think that's super funny. He'd be like, whipped cream is white. I'm like, yeah, it's white. Yeah, you know, it's just super fun. And so hanging out with him, and he's just being super cute, right? And you got to imagine, you got to emotionally connect with this love, right? I love my son. I'd do anything for my son. I'd give anything for my son, right? But imagine I loved you enough to give up my son for you. Like, you did something you shouldn't have done. You're about to go to court. You're about to be sentenced. My son and I have a talk about it, and we say, he's worth it. And my son goes down to the courthouse, and he gets up there by the judge, and he's sentenced in your place. You walk out free. That's the gospel that someone paid for you. Don't try to work to earn grace. Just enjoy it. And here's the question. If, you really, if I did that for you, and if Alden did that for you, and we were sentenced in your place, and then three days later came back with your sentence never to come and be haunting you again, three days later he comes out of that courtroom and he's free too, wouldn't you hang out with us? Wouldn't you love us? Wouldn't you serve? Wouldn't you go to the church that we founded? Wouldn't you be a part of our lives? Wouldn't you obey and like and enjoy our presence? That's the idea of the gospel as well. Make sure you know this. We are definitely saying this, so please quote me on this. I don't care. You don't do anything to be saved, but call on the name of the Lord who saves. You, we're not asking you to be a good kid. We're asking you to become God's kid. It is total freedom. You are free to walk out the door. No questions asked. No hassle. Your sins are gone. But here's what we are saying. That if that doesn't stir in you, this idea like, well, I'd rather hang out with you, Jesus. I'm going to come to your church, worship you. I like you. I'm going to live how you tell me to live. I'm going to hang out in your presence because you love me so much. I love you back. We love him because he first loved us. And if that's not you, then I don't think you're getting it. He really, like really loves you. He set you free at all costs to him and none to you. You are not going to hell. You are going to heaven if you're in Christ. And the idea is Merry Christmas. God loves you. So this Christmas, run from darkness and into light. And this Christmas, repent of sin and do what's right. And this Christmas, enjoy him because he set you free. And this Christmas, receive and open your heart to his love, an everlasting love that cannot be explained. If Christmas was a plant, the roots would be love. 
If all Jesus did for us was a garden, the seeds would be love. If his salvation was a ring, the diamond would be love. It all comes down to this at Christmas. God loves us. I'll pray and then we'll worship the God of love. Jesus, if anyone here doesn't know how much you love us, may they know today. May they connect with it, feel it, enjoy it, and be free by it. Thank you for your great salvation. Thank you for your great grace. Thank you that you, in our place for our sins, took a Roman cross that we might take an open road and walk with you forever. Thank you for warning us of judgment that we might repent. Thank you for the gift of giving us the gift of repentance. Thank you for stirring in us the faith that we need to be saved. Lord, none of our salvation is ours. It's all a gift from you, and we gladly receive it today. In Jesus' name, amen.